disruption is not easy, either to create or to confront. The woman I've met has done both successfully. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Unapologetically KK. My guest today is Mickey Agarwal, who is a social entrepreneur, author, disruptor, a philanthropist, and a super cool woman. Hello, Mickey, and welcome to Unapologetically KK. Hi, so happy to be here. Welcome to Dubai. This is your first time here? It is. Wow, what a playground for adults, huh? What have you done so far? Well, today we went ATVing. We, I did the sand dune, uh, what do you call it, uh-huh. with a car. The desert the safari. Sma- smashing, yeah. or what do you call it? Yeah, yeah. And dune the, bashing. Dune bashing. And then I went down on... Uh, did like this uh, snowboarding down the dune um, and just had really beautiful meals, had some great conversations. It's been just a lovely trip. Wow. Yes. Well, you can't come to Dubai and not go into the desert, obviously. So you've had your best experience already. Yeah, it was epic. I'm hoping you're going to come back because obviously you have a lot of things to see. There's so many more things. I would love to be. If I'm invited, I'll come. Okay. So that's that's what we have to do. We have to invite you here. Yes. Perfect. (laughs) So I have to talk about so many things and I know I have to start somewhere. And, you know, I was there listening to you talk yesterday and you was talking about your journey, which obviously has been written about and, and, you know, your products, which are breaking norms, taboo products, which people don't like to talk about. So what I want to ask you is that when you had that first idea, that aha moment that you talked about, what did you do next? Like the first thing you did? Um, just have many conversations, you know, when you have an idea for any business, you, mm-hmm. you have to say, is this something that is just, I'm, is it something that I'm thinking about or is right. it something that a lot of people are thinking about? And then as you have conversations, you uncover whether people are thinking about it or whether they're not. And so, you know, whether it's in the period space, you know, when I came up with my first, uh, period proof underwear product prior mm-hmm. to that, it was, you know, the aha moment came at my family barbecue and we were, when we were defending our three-legged race championship title with my twin sister. Mm-hmm. And um, my twin sister started her period in the middle of the race. And as she was, you know, we, had to, we ran to the bathroom together, still tied to each other. And in the middle of the race, my twin sister, uh, my, she started her period and then we went to the bathroom so she can wash out her bathing suit bottoms. Mm-hmm. And as she was washing out her bathing suit bottoms was when the idea hit. Yeah. Um, we know that the idea, the aha moment was, oh my God, wouldn't it be amazing to create a pair of underwear that never leaked and never stained and supported women every day of the month? Um, and so, you know, the first thing we did after coming up with that idea was talking to every woman around us. Mm-hmm. And in that process, realized that every single woman had an experience negatively on their periods yep. um, and then discovered how taboo it was. Um so yeah, people don't like talking people don't about want to it. talk about it. Of course, yeah. therefore, that's why there have been very little innovations. Yeah, and then and then I'll I'll cut to my my current product, which is probably a little bit easier to talk about right now, just mm-hmm. because um, we're we're you know past the startup phase, but um, it's it's I, I'm I'm much closer to that now. Mm-hmm. So my current product is is called Tushy, and it's looking right. at. Um, disrupting the toilet paper market. Uh And right now, toilet paper was brought to America in the late 1800s. And because, again, it's a taboo subject, it's a space that people are very uncomfortable talking about. Yes. Therefore, there's been very little innovation in it. Yeah, because the main thing people say is like, 
okay, why would you want to talk about it? Like we all want to know and they, you know, it's, it's not a conversation people want to have publicly. Right. Well, well, when you actually think about it, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's a 10 plus billion dollar category. The toilet paper category is when you actually really think about it, you would realize, wait a minute, I would never jump in my shower, not turn my water on and just use dry paper to wash, to like wipe my body down. People would call you crazy, right? Yeah. You know, or the the other analogy I gave last night was, would you go to your dirty dishes in your dish sink and rather than using water, just use dry paper and then put your dishes away. Like people would think you're disgusting and gross. Yeah. So the fact that we've been so deeply indoctrinated to believe that dry paper wipes and cleans the dirtiest part of our body Mm -hmm. is staggering. And in America, you know, right now, toilet paper is killing 15 million trees per year. Wow. You know, CO2 sucking trees. It's, you know, exacerbating 30 million combined cases of chronic urinary tract infections, hemorrhoids, these infections, all these issues. And so, you know, I grew up, I'm half Indian, half Japanese, and both cultures grew up with bidets. Mm -hmm. And so I've been obsessed with bidets. And And why hasn't America, why is it so late to the party? I mean, it's a developed country. What really has stopped them when it's already being used in developing countries. So it's it's cultural. So yes, it's ubiquitous in Japan, ubiqu- ubiquitous in all over Asia, Middle East and, and Europe, etc. Um, even like two floors are dedicated, you know, two floors at malls are dedicated to bidets in, in parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. So in, the, in, in America, the reason why, it's so silly when you think about it, is because a French person invented the bidet and mm-hmm. the English hate the French. That was the original reason why. They just kind of shunned that. And wow. the second reason is during World War II, when American soldiers went to Europe and fought in World War II, uh-huh. the soldiers would go to French brothels and they would see bidets in French brothels. Mm-hmm. And so they came back, you know, to puritanical America saying, we were never in brothels. We think bidets are disgusting and sexual and gross. And so it has this, this is real. You're, real. you're this telling is me real. this is the history. This is real. This is why Americans have not adopted the bidet and why it was not imported to this country. But obviously no one knows this right no, now. Nobody this knows is just this. you're saying it's conditioning. We're just you know, raised or they are just raised to believe that this is how you do it. That's, That's it. it. Since our, since the late 1800s. So now since our great grandparents, grandparents, and, you know, and now parents have all taught us that this is how you wipe yourself. And so it's just so deeply ingrained that you don't really question it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what my, you know, what, that's what excites me is to really question the status quo, really question the way things have been done, mm-hmm. really ask our, ask myself, like, who, what is society and who dictates the way we should think, act and behave? You know, society was created by people who are yeah. no different than you or me, yeah. let alone 100 years ago, maybe years past. Why it is it needs to progress? Why yeah. is society all of a sudden the, the, the gold standard? Does it make any sense? And so who is society is the question that I ask it. usually. I mean, like people say, you know, what will people say? This is how you're who, who are exactly, these people? exactly. And I think. We have been conditioned to be so self-conscious about yeah. saying anything that's out of the ordinary mm-hmm. that we just become ordinary. And, yeah. and we've been taught that you live an ordinary life, you live a nice life. You have a white picket fence house, you've got the dog, the car, the house with the kids and the, you know, and then you're, you'll, you'll have a nice, safe life. Yeah. But who wants that life? That life is boring. And some people yeah, might want that life, do. but yeah. it's just not the life that I want to lead. I want to lead a very different kind of 
you know, an orthodox free thinking, free thinking yeah, life. question everything. Yeah. Why not? So, so, so the first step, so, so talking about Tushy, my bidet company, and by the way, do not go to Tushy.com. It's a very graphic <laughs> porn site. Go to hello Tushy.com, T-U-S-H-Y.com. Um, and so my, my now husband at the time, boyfriend gave me a bidet attachment, this Chinese kind of contraption, mm-hmm. you know, eight years ago. And it was this ugly thing, but he knew I was obsessed with bidets, but I was living in a rental at that time. So I didn't want to buy a very expensive $2,000 Japanese bidet. I also didn't want to get those French squat things because there was no space. I'm not going to spend all this money plumbing uh, a bathroom in a unit that doesn't belong to me. I'm renting. And so it was, um, he found these, this Chinese product that he gave to me as my first Valentine's Day present. Nice. And um, and that was my aha moment. I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I don't, I can't believe these things exist. And wow, it's so ugly. I know I can make it better. I can create a brand. I can introduce a beautiful bidet attachment that easily clips onto your existing toilet, mm-hmm. turns any toilet into a bidet in 10 minutes. Right. There's no plumbing, no electrical required. It's only $69. So it's affordable to everyone. This is a big idea. And so, and again, because bidets have been rejected by America, Mm -hmm. it was a really fun cultural challenge. The challenge was to shift culture through a product. Right. And so we, so the first thing I did was reach out to manufacturers and look for manufacturers in Asia right away. Um, I didn't go to a prototyper. I went directly to manufacturers who are already manufacturing a similar product. Right. um, Different designs. Something did exist. Something existed like that in the past. Yeah, and you've obviously got an idea of what you wanted to. Yes, be. and and they and iterated on on the existing thing. Right. You know, now I've I've created products from the from scratch that did not exist in the past, like my period underwear product. Yes, and that took four years to develop and right. create. We did it ourselves. We contacted all the suppliers. We contacted all the technologists. We put the product, you know, the fabrics together. We sewed. The, you know, we had a seamstress sew the product. We, mm-hmm. we really did. We quarterbacked the whole thing. Right. And so in the beginning, I think it's really important to quarterback the whole experience when you're starting something brand new that no one's seen or heard before. Because if you put it in the hands of the prototyper, this is kind of the bracket of the napkin idea of what I want. Go figure it out. They don't have the same no. passion as you. No. So you have to sit there every step of, of the way with them yes. to walk them through exactly what you want. I agree because it's your idea and, and what the prototyper brings to the table is technical knowledge. They exactly. do not understand the fit or, or the quality or they just are capable of putting your ideas and making them into a real product. And so, yes, you have to have the idea, which is amazing, which is what I'm saying is that when something doesn't exist, how do you know where to start? Like you were saying that with with the period underwear, um, the idea came because your sister was washing her bikini bottom. So where yeah. do you even start with, okay, I have this idea and it's such a broad concept. So I need to now think of a product, which well, I need to think of fabric that doesn't exist. Right. I need to kind of think of fit. I need to think, and I don't even know once I have all of this, whether it's going to work. And if I do make it work, I don't know how much I'm going to charge for it. And I don't know who's going to buy it. So. Right. I mean, th- th- these are all unknowns. And for a lot of people, that's too much to bear. And for mm-hmm. some people, we have enough naivete that we're like, yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think we have to, as entrepreneurs, have a very healthy level of, level of naivete 
naivete and to really think that, oh, how hard could that be? And I think that's what we did when we started creating the product, um, whether for Thinks or whether for Tushy. It was just like, oh, this, this can't be so hard. And four years later, yeah. after we spent so much time um, we realized it was hard, but after then two years, you're like, okay, I can't go back now. I got to keep going. And so you just keep going. If you have enough conviction around something, then you'll keep going until it's done. One of the articles that I was reading on uh, Forbes was uh, about disruptive and innovative products was that it requires the product to obviously solve a very big problem. You know, for people to try it, it's got to be, you're going to somebody and saying that you don't think you need this. But listen, once you use it, you will realize how much you need it. So it's changing, you know, it's it's a mind shift. That's so, it. And it also requires for the product to be about almost 80% cheaper. That's what the article said. So how did you come about with your pricing policy? I mean, because I know when you were talking about this yesterday, you were saying that the bidets that are available are much more expensive than than what Tushy is being sold yeah. at. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean for 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 this particular product there are way more expensive products. I think for us there in the bidet attachment space there are Chinese, you know, products that are you know, mm-hmm. much cheaper than ours as well. So mm-hmm. we we're really affordable. Like I said, $69 compared to multi-thousand dollar Japanese bidets. But our product is a designer, modern brand. Yeah, and not compromising on quality. Right, not compromising on quality, not co- compromising on aesthetic, yeah. on, you know, really considering every touch point of the design aspect of the product that we consider and, and no other company does that. And I mm-hmm. think people really care about the way things look and feel in their homes. Of course, of and course. The, we and these want are personal products. These so are, you don't want to have anything on your body. You don't want to use something, you know, for personal hygiene that isn't of the highest quality. And doesn't, A, isn't of the highest quality and doesn't feel good. You don't feel, you know, you're walking into your bathroom several times a day and you're seeing yep. the product and you don't want, you want to make sure the product upgrades your bathroom experience. Yeah. And and someone walks into the, your bathroom and says, oh, cool, that you have a tushy, that's awesome. You've now have an upgraded experience. Yeah. So it creates an aspirational feeling. Right. And I think everyone who starts a brand wants to create an aspirational brand. So how do you get there? That's my question. Yeah, you have to, to create an aspirational brand, you have to really care about every touch point of the brand. You have to care about every interaction that anyone's having with it. When they first come to your website, what do they see? What do they, what do they read? You know, what are the pop-ups that come up? When they first receive your package, when they first see a Facebook ad campaign or an Instagram ad campaign, what does that make you feel and how do they respond to it? And I think we really consider every every bit of it, mm-hmm. even the home video kind of corny ones that we do, we do that on purpose because yeah. we want to test the market and see if a corny video about bidets will work better than a very high stylized quality video would be. Because sometimes home videos outperform, you know, yeah. a very expensive video. And so we just, we want to, we throw a lot of different things on the wall and, and they're all done with utmost consideration. So I think a lot of people just put a ad together and put a thing, jumbled up words. For me, when I think about creative, I have to have a lot of breathing room. Yeah. Breathing room creates artful experience. Breathing room creates that aspirational look and feel. When you think mm-hmm. about the top brands, they're not f- so many words on the page. It's one logo and so Clean. much space around it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where 
advertisers have forgotten how critical that is, like to really create space, to give yeah. it, to allow the person who's seeing it inter- interpret for themselves what it could be for them. It's it's a noisy space. Yeah. You need to stand out. And, and that's what I want to understand that, you know, we all have these ideas with our advertising campaigns for our products. And, and when we're sitting... Uh, and brainstorming with our team and we're like, mm, do you think this is going to work? And do you think that's going to work? And especially with you, you're trying a lot of out of the box marketing strategies. Your ads are talking about things that people are not used to seeing on billboards. Um, so what do you feel at that time when you're throwing something out there before you put something out to the market and you're having this brainstorm session and you're like, do you think we can we can do this? You know, can we be this bold? Should we go this far? The answer is always yes. If you think that looks good, then it's not enough. It needs to, it needs to just blow your socks off. Yeah. It needs to, it needs to be show stopping. It needs to make you stop in your tracks to look. I mean, they say you only have three seconds to capture someone's attention. Sometimes it's less between one and three seconds. Right. And, and what will arrest someone in that one to three seconds? It's art. You know, people care about art and people stop and look at art for a second. And so advertisers forgot that when you're creating something, we're creating it for people who appreciate art. Mm -hmm. And so if we can create art and and call that a advertisement, then that's 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 pushing the envelope. And I think that's what people are going to really feel like your brand is an aspirational, artful brand. Right. Um, One of the things again, my research shows uh, with innovative, with disruptive brands is what kills it, what kills the ideas is thinking about the business side of it, the return on investment, you know, the money that you need to to, to start the business. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's great as an idea. And when you do something that you love, that's just come to you naturally. And that happens with you know, creative people, you just get an idea. And when it's successful, people come and say, how did you think of this? But it's literally, you have a thought and then it's such a strong thought that you just feel, I have to go with this. But when you make it a business, it's a completely different story. You're talking about investments, you're talking about margins, you're talking about returns, you're talking about profit. How do you get a great idea to stay great and take it all the way, you know, to be successful? Yeah. I mean, consistency, 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 creating a great consistent product that, you know, works and that looks and feels great. Um, you know, I think that's number one. I think people forgot how important consistency is. Um, and I think when you're starting and and trying to raise money, I think today there's more opportunity to raise money than there was five, 10 years ago. I think there's so many accelerators now. There are so many pitch competitions. There are so many, you know, startup funds that are looking for the next big thing. And if you have a great idea, you can just put together a great pitch deck. You can go check out if you, if you Google Guy Kawasaki's 10 slides, Mm -hmm. that is um, a great place to start as to like what your presentation deck should look like. Not, not from an aesthetic perspective because it's ugly, but just the content of it, like Guy Kawasaki, 10 slides. And when you go there, you can, it'll tell you like, you know, what's the problem? Why are, you know, what's your unique solution? Like who are the competitors and blah, blah, blah. And you put together, answer those questions. You answer those questions that investors have. It's 10 slides. Um, and you obviously you make it aesthetically pleasing because mm-hmm. what he's done is not, but it's, but the content is there. I'm just going to repeat that again because I just want to, you know, clear that for me. Um, and, 
and you start you start there and and once you have your pitch deck yeah. you can then start sending it out to people who you might know have extra pocket change in their pockets and say, Hey, I have this idea. Here's why I'm, here's why I'm uniquely positioned to do this. Mm -hmm. And here's, you know, I'm not going to stop until it's out in the world. And usually you start with people who know you, if they really believe that you're a convicted person, that you will not stop. You're not one of those fair weather people who are like get bored and kind of go off and party yeah, and hang out and course. change course and just, you know, lose interest. Or if yeah. you're like a pretty maniacally focused human, mm -hmm. then you'll get money. And I think only those who really, really focus on you know, putting their, the right pitch together to yeah. put the right deck together, to ask everyone around them all the right questions to say, okay, let's do a, let's do a sample pitch contest. Like you ask me the questions and I'm going to answer them. Yeah. People who really care and practice and do the work are the ones who will make the money and will, will, will finally get to profitability because they're actually the ones who are diligent enough to get there. Yeah. And, and they're, they make sure that they know everything there is to know about it. So yeah. you're calling out the the people who are just there for your money. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And also crowdfunding, online crowdfunding has been decentralized um, in America, right. which means that people, you can go online and put your pitch deck online at, on different platforms. There's like wefunder.com. There's a few other places. Kickstarter. Kickstarter Angel. I mean, Kickstarter is, is a crowdfunding platform where you can pre-sell products. Yeah. But then there are websites now that you can actually raise money on those platforms. Right. Angel List is a good place to put your put up your pitch deck and, and reach out to investors. Um, uh, yeah, angellist.com. There's so many of them yeah. now. And so I think that's, that's, you know, um, when you're applying to accelerators all around the world, you can do that. And eventually you'll say like, okay, either no one's investing in my idea because they don't get it. Right. Um, which, which happened and to I me. I need to simplify it then. I need to kind of yeah, explain it better. Yeah. Yeah. You need to learn how to explain it better. Um, and you learn how, who your audience is. We learned very quickly that, you know, we didn't want to be too, talking about how it feels, you know, when we're using the product because most, most investors are men. Right. And so they don't really care how it feels. They want to know if it works and they want to know Show what the market, the yes, what the size of the market is and what the opportunity yeah. is. So you and kind you of have to have you, that because how can you ask somebody for their money without a business plan? That's you, it. you can't take people's money. It's a huge responsibility. And once you've taken that money, you need to know exactly what you're going to do with it. And if you don't, Yep. I mean, it's so that's, like shooting yourself in the foot. Totally. So that's where you start. You just start with, and then also like you, you want to, you want to do when you, when you put together a presentation, choosing the right fonts, choosing the right images, that stuff matters. Yes. People really care how about you present yourself. how you present your products, how you present the look and feel of, and the aesthetic of the presentation. If it's too jumbled up all on one slide, you don't have to put it on the next slide, yeah. you know, or, or minimize the words, find make the most look beautiful, make it artful. look, make it look beautiful yeah. and artful and impactful yes. at the same time. Exactly. So I do a few interviews myself and I get asked a lot of questions and it's usually a lot of the same questions. And, you know, sometimes it's extremely frustrating to, to keep saying, yes, this is what I wear. This is what I go. This is the colors of the season. Cause you know, with fashion, I'm a fashion designer. What is the stupidest question you've been asked to date? The stupidest question I've been asked to date. Wow. Um, I've definitely been asked stupid questions. I'm just trying to think. What's the worst? Of the, of just one. Because <laughs> it's, the, I just, I'm, yeah. 
I guess like what's my favorite color or something really uninteresting like that. Stuff like that. Just super routine question that you're just like, really? And I'm like, I guess it's blue, but maybe it's green. (laughs) It's sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's pink. I don't know. It's black. Yeah, we all go through it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My last question, I have to ask you about the hat. Tell me about your fashion choice. They're amazing. I love them. And it's become such a signature for you now. So how did it come about? When did it start? Yeah, I mean... I think the hat is really just a representation of openness and of a unique style. I mean, I think I, yeah. I think first it, it wearing a hat really opens the doors for people to be like, nice hat. And then, and then it kind of ice break, it's an icebreaker. And then you start a conversation a lot easier. And I also think that it's a stylistic look that people. I love it. Thank you. And that so many people don't wear a hat anymore. Yeah. And I just feel like there's. Back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, everybody wore hats. Everybody. You couldn't walk right. down a street without someone without a hat on because it was such a cool accessory. And just at some point, it fell out a la mud and it just changed, you know? And I um, I think it's really... And, and by the way, in this I have, a, I have a new book coming out called Disrupt Her. Mm-hmm. And it's a manifesto for the modern woman. And... It's your um, second book. It's my second book. Yes. Yes. And on the cover, I'm actually wearing a hat as well, yes. which is which is a profile of the hat. And um, and just just to share a little bit about the book, you know, I wrote the book because, you know, as I'm as I've been in, in disruptive categories mm-hmm. for my life as, as a, in my profession, I think I've just just dealt with so much pushback and so much, you know, people throw rocks at me because or, or you know, people who are doing disruptive things. Yep. And so it was really understanding where these common beliefs come from. You know, we, we, we live in these societies where society wants to maintain its form yes. and anyone who tries to come in and shake it up will be tr- first tried, you know, to be, you know, squashed and removed because society wants to keep, keep itself. Yeah, change is hard change for people is hard For so many. And so... My book really looks at 13 major areas in a woman's life, in a human's life. It's really meant to be read by all humans. Mm-hmm. So looking at 13 major areas in our lives where we're told how to think, act, and be. And right. it really looks at 13 common beliefs um, and, and gives a historical context to the common beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so you can show, it can show us like, oh, why do we have that thought at all? Right. And then it disrupts them one by one. It just gives historical context and then disrupts 13 major areas Breaks of our lives. Myth. Breaks them down. Yeah. That's amazing. Yes. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay in Dubai and I hope you're back again soon so that we can chat with you and find out what is happening. I believe you have a new product coming as well. So Mm -hmm. I'd love to follow that and and find out how that does and all the very best. Thank you. And if you want to find out uh, anything about my book, you can just go to my new book coming out. You just go to Mm -hmm. disrupther.co to find Do Cool Shit, my first book. Just go to Amazon. And then for Tushy, it's hellotushy.com. And then anything else about me, you can just go to mickeyagrawal.com. That was Mickey Agrawal, social entrepreneur, disruptor, philanthropist, and an author of two very cool books. Do Cool Shit, which says quit your job, start your own business, and live happily ever after. And her new book, Disrupt Her, which is a manifesto for the modern woman. But she, as she says... It's basically for all humans. This is Kanchan Kulkarni saying goodbye for now and speak to you again soon.